on it, not knowing that uh, that's what this church was all about, and uh, and it it was the right thing to wear, as it turned out. <laughs> and uh, and then your pastor was kind enough to give me a lighthouse when I left that Sunday, and it sits in our living room right now. And so every time we walk through there, see that lighthouse, we think of you, and we love your your center and your on missions. We sang about God's sovereignty and about God's love and. And it is indeed an amazing thing that uh, the way God loves us. How many people in this world do you think God loves? Isn't it amazing? And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. You know, I come here and I'm introduced as as representing the Gideons, but to tell you the truth, I represent someone a lot higher in in the chain than the Gideons. And uh, I, I tell you about the Gideon simply to tell you what God is doing using a rather remarkable ministry. I want to begin by reading a passage from Isaiah to you, uh, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 55. Here, here's what uh, God says. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. One of the principal reasons that I and my wife are involved in the Gideon ministry is because we believe that God meant what he said there. And, and God often tells me this. He says, Wingfield, shut up because I can speak for myself. Before I get through here tonight, you may be echoing that same thing. Uh, but uh, I am amazed. And, and over and over, God emphasizes this to me. That if someone will, if I can get someone into his word, I don't need to talk. God speaks for, for himself. My wife is an example of that. She got saved because she read God's word. And, and in a course of a few months, she came and gave her heart to the Lord Jesus. And we see that in, in our work as Gideons all around the country because we have one focus. And that is to win men, women, boys and girls to the Lord Jesus Christ by personal witnessing, by giving them scriptures and making those scriptures available. This year, as we get to, uh, we finish our fiscal year in May. When I was here three years ago, I told you that we were on track to distribute right around 72 million scriptures that year. This year, it will be over 80 million scriptures. Uh, It's an amazing thing. And God honors that work because he honors his word. When people read his word, there is power there. 
You know, some of those testaments and Bibles were distributed right here in Big Bear at your high school and the hotels and motels, at your middle school, in doctor's offices. Uh, and we see fruit from those things. We see people come to the Lord Jesus. Well, when I was here, you know, that was supposed to be up in... There we go. There we go. All the places that we distribute, we're not going to stop there. You know that stuff. Okay. When I was here before, that's what I talked about. I'd just been to Chile on a distribution, and we distributed in two-week period 469,000 Bibles and Testaments. And... And, one, and I, I told you about some of the places that we went. This was a college campus there, and, and that, that young woman is reading one of the testaments that we had passed out the entrance to that. We saw people all over the place gathered around reading those testaments, talking to one another. We went into jail. That was, that's a Chilean jail. Those are cells on either side there, and that's the chaplain, actually, that's walking with his back to us there. These are men. These are prisoners in that jail. And they, they put on their best clothes. They wear their own clothes there. And they put on their best clothes and had a church service for them, for us. And they're, they're singing. In fact, uh, the man that's right dead center there, he's not really a prisoner. He used to be a prisoner. He came back to be with the guys to, 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 for this. And we went to schools. And one of the stories that I told you at that time was about a young girl that uh, when we went into the classrooms, we'd present the gospel. You can't do that here, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, you know, but in, there, in those schools, we'd go in and we would present the gospel from God's love to this problem with sin, to the, to the need for salvation, to God's answer for that. And, and children would respond. And there was one little girl that I just love to remember, sixth grader. And, and the teacher asked, can, is there anything that you would like to say to this man? Any people here that, that any of the children would want to say something to me? And this little girl stood up and she said, thank you for coming. Because now, even when I'm afraid, I'm free. She understood redemption, that God had paid the price for her. Well, I want to tell you about this, this lady. Before I do that, though, I do want to tell you there's more going on in Chile. It didn't just begin and stop in 2006. It was, uh, you remember there was an earthquake there recently? You know who was there when the earthquake hit? The Gideons. You know what they did? They set up an emergency distribution center so that people coming to those evacuation centers receive testaments. You know what happens when people receive God's word? They get saved. We have teams going down there. And there's a friend of mine that lives here in Southern California. He goes down at least two or three times a year as a national field representative to make sure that that work is progressing. Sandy and I have had opportunity to meet with many of the men that, that I uh, served with there in 2006. And they said, you wouldn't believe what continues to happen because of all of those scriptures going out on college campuses, in schools, in the police stations, in our communities, in our churches, as the churches grow from these people coming to the Lord Jesus. You may have remembered recently in the news there was another huge earthquake in Haiti. You, you know what's, when I happened in Haiti, you know what else was there? The Gideons were there, again, passing out scriptures in those evacuation centers. And something you will not hear on CNN is that all around the cities in, the, in Haiti, 
People are gathered around bonfires at night in the midst of destruction. They have no homes. And you know what they're doing? They're singing praises to our God. The churches are experiencing revival because people are turning from voodoo that in many cases that has been a large part of their lives. Well, as I talk about this young lady, Shannon Bettis, God is in the business of changing lives. And he does it sometimes in a remarkable way. Shannon had made a shambles of her life. You've heard of type A personalities. She's triple A. Only thing she cared about was working in her corporate business. And she got so consuming, she left her husband and her child. And after she was gone for, for several months, you know, she was feeling like maybe, maybe she made a mistake. Her husband said, hey, you left, you're gone, I'm filing file for divorce. And it seemed like it was over for him. She was out running 4 o'clock in the morning in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, it's hot and it rains and it's they have great thunderstorms there. Well, this was a thunderstorm morning. And as she's running, she's recognizing, she's crying out to God because she recognizes, what a mess I've made of my life. God, if you're there, do something, answer me. And almost as the instant that that came out of her mouth, there was a flash of lightning and a clap of thunder. And when, she, when the lightning flashed, she could see up here in this dark street as the rain came down, something lying there in the street. And she ran up to it, and she found a testament that looked something like that. Let me tell you something remarkable about that testament. It was dry. It's raining. It's wet. The testament was dry. It seemed uh, that it was an, a good thing. It, it seemed appropriate that it was a Gideon testament because, you know, he's the guy that put out the fleece, and the fleece was dry, and everything was wet. And, you know, and by... Well, that's what was going on there. And so she put, the, put it in her pocket and ran home. And, you know, when God answers a prayer like that and with a flash of lightning and a clap of thunder and, and now you've got this dry book on a wet street, you've you got to read it. And so she did read it. And Shannon Bettis came to the Lord. She approached her husband and told him, you know, what had happened. And he was kind of skeptical of this. I mean, he had enough of her driven personality. And uh, he, so he watched her for about six months. And at the end of about six months, he gave his heart and life to the Lord Jesus as well. They're married. They minister together. They're great people. Because God is in the business of changing lives by his word. Isn't that great? Yeah. Well, you all know about the Bibles and hotels and motels. Well, there's this guy named Elliot Osowit, and if you go on the Gideon website, there are, are testimonies there that you can watch videos of guy, and one of them is Elliot Osowit. Well, Elliot was kind of a jerk, and he came home one Christmas Eve. He's knocking on the door on Christmas Eve, and his wife says, go away. Now, he richly deserved that because he'd been living an immoral life. His wife had cancer. She was taking care of their two grandchildren. And he was doing nothing but going out, getting drunk, using drugs, messing around with women, all sorts of stuff. She said, go away. Elliot went to a hotel room and he got out a gun. And he said, I'm going to end this all tonight. Well, as he was considering that, he looked over on the television 
and there was a Bible open sitting on top of the television. And that kind of irritated him. I don't need that. And he took his hand and knocked it off into the floor, and it landed open in the floor. Well, that irritated him even more. So he kicked it to try to kick it under the bed, and it was one of those beds that's solid all the way to the ground. (laughs) And so he had no choice but to pick it up. And when he picked it up, he picked it up to John 14. And he said, and Jesus said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. And, and he, he's amazed by that because he needed peace. Now, this is a Jewish man reading the New Testament about the peace that Jesus offers. And for three days he stayed in that motel and read the scriptures. And you know what happens. You read the scriptures. You ask God for answers. He gives them. Elliot Osiwit did reunite with his wife. They minister together in a small church in the mountains of North Carolina. Here is a guy, Jewish in Southern California, urban guy. God transplanted, made him a pastor in a church in the mountains, Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Our God's an awesome God. Well, I'm going to skip through some of these pretty quickly because I don't want to take any of the pastor's time. But in 2003, there was another one of those, those scripture blitzes where we go in into a country and pass out lots of scriptures. And, and, and this little girl came home from school and, and showed this testament to her, her. It was in Spanish, obviously, not this one. And, and she said, they gave me this book at school. And he looks at it and finds out it's the New Testament. He says, you can't have that book. We only get our books from the priest. And so, and she played with him and she said, he said, okay, well, I'll just, let me read it first. So he put it in his pocket and he went off to work. That day, he worked in a mine and there was a cave-in in the mine. And 13 men were trapped in the bottom of that mine shaft. And when they finally dug them out, they had all died. But in the pocket of that little girl's father was that testament. In the back of every Gideon testament, there's the plan of salvation and a place where you can sign your name if you've received the Lord Jesus as, as Savior. And her dad's name was written there on the line along with 12 other men. God's timing is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, we are in a war. And I'm going to go through these very quickly because uh, those numbers are bigger than they were the last time I was here. In 1999, the Islamic fundamentalist movement caused a lot of deaths in Indonesia. Now, this next picture is gory. So if you get squeamish, don't look, okay? Because one of the things that happened in this fundamentalist movement was these guys came across a young man who was a Christian man in Indonesia. His name was Domingus. And Domingus said, you either renounce Jesus Christ or we're going to kill you. And you see those knives that they're holding up like machetes? Well, here's how they use that. You can see his neck is cut almost all the way through. And they took Domingus away as though he were dead. And as he carried him away, he said, God, I'm a Christian. 
and they took him to the hospital, and the, ho- the doctors wouldn't work on him. You're dead. When you get your neck cut that far, you're dead. And yet, he was still alive. And three days later, come on, machine. Would you advance it one for me? Three days later, he left the hospital healed. I've, I have talked to Dominguez. You see the scar on the back of his neck? It goes from here all the way around the back to here. And Dominguez is today serving the Lord Jesus. We're fighting a war here too. You remember what happened in Fort Hood. We're fighting a war in our schools. Uh, you know, we go into schools and in Hawaii, of all places, a couple of years ago, I was in a high school on the north shore of Oahu. We were out, well, I wasn't in the school, I was outside the school, and we were passing out testaments as students left that day. We'd been to the police department and given them testaments. We'd been all over the place. And uh, as I was passing out Bibles to the students, a teacher comes out. She's starting to make the students give back the testaments. Well, some of them refused, but I found out that I could pass them out faster than she could make them give them back, and so I was still winning the battle there. And then a little bit later, she gave up, and then the principal came out, and she said, you guys don't belong here. Get out. And I said, well, are we on school property? And she said, no. This is a public area? Yeah. We're going to stay. And uh, she said, well, I'm, I'm going to call the police. I said, well, that would be okay. Aren't you going to leave? No. And a few minutes later, there's a police car pulls up across the highway. And, and he sits over there in the car, and I'm passing out scriptures. I mean, that's what I'm doing. And, and after a while, he drives over, and he rolls down the window. And, and there was a clue that things were kind of going okay because he stuck out his hand to shake my hand. And he said, uh, he said you don't look like a drug dealer. Because apparently that's what the principal had told him. And so we talked for a while, and he offered some things that were, weren't going to work out. And, and he agreed it put the ch- children in danger. And he stuck out his hand again, shook my hand. He says, good work. Keep it up. And he drove away. We're in a war. I want to tell you one final story as we, when I find my clicker. What did I do with it? There it is. It's a tough day. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be a part of reaching the world for Christ. You know, you, I know you folks have been. When I was here before, the reason I tell you these stories is because this church has played a part in, in that by providing scriptures for people around the world. I, I saw your, your rack out, the Memorial Bible display, uh, which is now Gideon cards, by the way. And, uh, and I, so I know that you folks are using that to provide scriptures for the world. But I want to tell you a story about a young lady whose name was Bridget Millsap. Bridget Millsap was a 14-year-old girl. And she lived in Gentry, Arkansas. And And a man that I know who's a Gideon was in their church one Sunday in 1999. And he told them about the Gideon ministry. And one of the things that he says is something that I'll tell you too. He says, don't don't take, ever take a dime that belongs to your church that you would give to your church and give it to anybody else, particularly the Gideons. Don't do that. You need to support your church. 
But he says, you know what? I have no problem taking your Walmart money or your, you know, whatever else, <laughs> or, or your, your, your skiing money or your greens fees or maybe even that money you normally spend to go out to, to eat sometimes because we spend a lot of money going out to eat. And, uh, and it was a few days later that the pastor of that church received a letter from this little girl, this 14-year-old Bridget. And, and the letter said this. Let me read to you what she wrote. She said, uh, Dear Brother Bill, that was the pastor, I would like to thank you so much for having Arnie come to speak to our church this Sunday. I really enjoyed it. The stories he told really touched me. I've been saving money all summer long by babysitting. I was going to buy a pair of Doc Martin shoes, but, but after hearing Arnie, I've withdrawn the money I saved to purchase a case of scriptures. I hope these Bibles touch someone else's life. Sincerely, Bridget Millsap. The scriptures are $1.30 apiece. That, that young girl took $130, which is about the cost of those Doc Martens. I don't know if you remember those expensive shoes. And, and she took that and she said, no, I'd rather change lives than have my feet happy. And um, so she included that check for $130. As it turned out, Arnie was getting ready to speak in a church four years later on a Saturday evening. And he received a phone call. And the phone call was from Gentry, Arkansas. And he said, and the phone call said this, Arnie, pray for our church. And he said, why? What happened? He said, we had two van loads of kids who had been skiing in, 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 in Colorado. And on their way back, they'd been driving through the night, and, and one of the drivers went to sleep on I-70 in Kansas, rolled the van, and his wife, his 35-year-old wife, was killed. And he said, and there's more, because the van following it was filled with teenage girls. And when they saw what happened, they jumped out, and one of them ran across the, the, the highway to try to help because she was trained in first aid. She was a lifeguard, and that was Bridget. She was, she was 18 years old, and she died that evening when she was hit by a car. Arnie was in tears. But he said, that letter has done more to raise script money for scriptures than any other single thing he can imagine. Because here was a 14-year-old girl who recognized God loves people, not just in this country, but every country. And you know, over half the world earns less than $2 a day. They can't provide scriptures for themselves. It's up to us to give that life-giving book. And so I challenge you that you can, if you use the area of your life, that you can sacrifice, even in these tough economic times, and I know they're tough right now, give a, give a case of scriptures. Provide scriptures for someone to read that brings life to them because God is an amazing God and his word is powerful and it always accomplishes the purpose that he sent it. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. Go ahead. We don't pass bags very often. All of our offerings are uh, set up to just have you just drop it in the boxes on the wall in the back. But this is a specific offering, and we want to make sure that we 
um, give you opportunity to connect and to give. And, um, you know, if you're making out a check, you can make it to the church. What we'll do is we'll just make one check tomorrow and mail it off to Gideon's. And, uh, you know, you can put your diamond rings in or whatever you like. Your Rolex and your all that. Probably not in this outfit. <laughs> but... Uh, be generous. Practice the grace of giving this morning, and let's let's bless the Gideons. Don, thank you, Sandy, for getting up early and running right past all the open coffee houses to get here. I think I'm gonna have to park on Dominguez a little bit here this morning because the message this morning is about joy. We talked about principles of giving two weeks ago, the grace of giving last week. And I realized that the word grace, charis in the Greek, is the same root word as kara, which is joy, or karo, which is to rejoice. And I realized that when we talk about having a grace to be able to give brings joy. When the grace of God comes into our life, you remember the day? Yeah, work on that a little bit, will you? Here, I'll make it worse. <laughs> I'll dance around until you can change it. When, when God gives us the grace through Jesus Christ, and we are saved, we know our sins are forgiven, did it bring joy? Was it a joy that couldn't be altered much? We weren't talking about happiness, which is temporal. Happiness comes and goes. I used the illustration last night that you hand a child an ice cream cone and it's instant happiness for most of them. But if they turn around and it falls off onto the ground, they can be unhappy just as instantaneously. Because happiness is temporal. It's based on circumstances. But joy is permanent. Joy is resident. It's kind of like programs on your computer. Some programs are resident programs. They're, they're lodged within your machine and you depend on those. Others you have to go out and find it to make you happy in the moment that you want, want that thing to work. But some programs are just deposited inside and they work all the time for you. Unless you happen to have a PC. <laughs> Psalm chapter 16 verse 11. And just lift this quickly from the word this one verse which comes from a chapter that in my Bible is titled the hope of the faithful and the Messiah's victory there's prophetic passage here about Christ but the psalmist David ends his Psalm 16 by writing you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy I was thinking of Dominguez as he was Don was showing us this young man and I thought now there's if, of all the people I've known I think he's got a pretty good case for being unhappy in the moment but the residents of Jesus in his life kept his joy in place. D.A. Spencer wrote this, Most Christians cherish the beauty of the truth 
that God viewed us through the lens of Jesus' goodness when we claimed Him as our Savior. We trusted that Christ's death paid the penalty for our sins and that we were made right with God, justified. Not by our own holiness, but by trusting in the holiness He provided. Just as objects look red when viewed through a red lens and green when viewed through a green lens, we believed that when God looked at us through Jesus, He viewed us as His own child. Belief in this provision of grace whereby God chose to view us as His beloved through no good of our own (coughs) became the greatest joy of our souls. What robs many believers of this joy, however is a misunderstanding of how God continues to view us after we have received grace that justifies us. After initially trusting in Christ to make them right with God, many Christians embark on an endless pursuit of trying to satisfy God with good works that will keep them will keep him loving them. Such Christians believe that they are saved by God's grace but are kept in His care by their own goodness. This belief, whether articulated or buried deep in a psyche developed by the way we were treated by parents, spouses, or others, makes the Christian life a perpetual race on a performance treadmill to keep winning God's affection. I inserted into my notes, and most of you know uh, we have a television in our house probably for 30 years. But I was in a... I was in where the Gideons live. I was in a motel this week. (laughs) And so I was flipping the channels. That's what guys do. So I had to practice being a male. Flipping the channels. Has Has anybody else seen this little commercial for the new little car called the Soul? With there's little mice all over the screen in treadmills, waiting at stoplights, until this new little car pulls up with four little mice in it, or and they're all kind of getting down because they got a ride, and they're just sort of scooting through traffic. But all the traffic around them is nothing but mice in treadmills. That picture just ran into my mind when I read this. The belief whether articulated or buried deep in a psyche developed by the way we were treated by parents, spouses, or others makes the Christian life a perpetual race on on a performance treadmill just to keep winning God's affection. And I I see that little commercial and I think there's a lot of Christians in this condition that are running on their little treadmills trying to please God so He'll still love them. But the guys that really have it together are in the soul. (laughs) They, they got a free ride. They got a car. Or they're going to get moved through town on a free ride. And that's grace. While the Christian life can be characterized as a race, he continues, we persevere on the course God marks out for us, not by straining to gain his affection, but by the assurance that he never stops viewing us from the perspective of his grace. God continually offers us unconditional love and the encouragement that our status as His children does not vary even though our efforts do. Grace. 
We sang this morning, Sovereign, you are still sovereign, even when confusion blinds my eyes. Even when the darkness gathers around me, you're still sovereign. You have not changed. The verse of Jesus uh, relates to Jesus. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. He doesn't change. He saved us by His grace, His unconditional love. We spent a little time this morning singing, Lord, I'm amazed by you. A little end. How you love me. That's the amazing part. Aren't there days when you say, Today is not a good day, God, for you to love me. <laughs> Have you done that one? You say, Today is just not one of those days. Of all days, you would not love me this day. And so, but I'll be better tomorrow. I'll work harder. I'll get my treadmill oiled up. And I'll do a lot of good works. And I'll feel better about myself. And then I'll believe again that you love me. God said, I didn't change. Remember the first day I loved you? You were in your worst condition. You were desperate for a Savior. You didn't have any help at all. You had come to the end of you and finally realized that you could not save yourself and you cast yourself into my care. And on that day, I loved you with all the love I have. And that's joy. That's resident joy that comes in. Joy, grace, I think just because they're in the same root word, they're married. That when grace comes, it produces joy. Do we believe it this morning? I'm preaching to the choir, as we say. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Think of Paul the Apostle. You know the little letter of Philippians. As he wrote to the Philippians. um, In fact, why don't I just read this to you. This is one of those study Bibles that has introductions to the books. You read those? They're helpful, aren't they? Listen to this one. The background of the epistle of Paul to to the Philippians. Acts chapter 16, verses 12 to 40, records the founding of the Philippian church. Now let's park right there. Remember the founding of the Philippian church? Where's Paul? Paul and Silas in jail. And they're singing praises at midnight, and the place has an earthquake, and uh, much like Chile and... (laughs) and Haiti, people are getting saved because of it. The jailer runs in and says, he's going to kill himself, don't hurt yourself, we're all here. The jailer takes him home after saying, what what must I do? And he said, we don't believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved in your whole household, your whole oikos. We talked about this not long ago. Takes him home, cleans their wounds. That night, the whole family gets baptized. The whole oikos of this man is saved and and the foundation of a church is made in a family of a Philippian jailer. Paul established the church during his second missionary journey about 51 AD. From its inception, the church displayed a strong missionary zeal and was consistent in its support of Paul's ministry. Paul enjoyed a closer friendship with the Philippians than with any other church. Paul most likely wrote his letter to the Philippians during his Roman imprisonment in AD 61. 
He wrote to thank them for the contribution he had received from them. He also also warmly commended Epaphroditus who had brought the gift from Philippi and whom Paul was sending back with this letter. While his primary reason for writing the letter was to acknowledge the gift sent by the Philippians, Paul also appealed for a spirit of unity and steadfast among them. In addition, he warned against dangerous heresies that were threatening them, probably Judaism and Gnosticism. In many respects, this is the most beautiful of Paul's letters, full of tenderness, warmth, and affection. His style is spontaneous, personal, and informal, presenting us with an intimate diary of Paul's own spiritual experiences. The dominant note throughout the letter is that of a triumphant joy. And we often call Philippians the epistle of joy. Paul, though a prisoner, was exultantly happy and called upon his readers to rejoice in Christ always. Chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Here he is in prison, writing to a church that was founded by a, by a jailer while he was in prison in that town. You remember that little statement I, I found the other day? It said, why is it everywhere Paul went, there was a riot breaks out, and everywhere I go, they just serve tea. <laughs> I mean, I'm just not as radical a believer, evidently. You know? It is an ethical and practical letter, and its emphasis and centers on Jesus Christ. To Paul, Christ was more than an example than an example. He was the apostle's very life. Joy, in Galatians chapter 5, just a couple of short letters back, is included in Paul's list of the graces, again the charis, the graces of the Holy Spirit, the giftings that come with the Holy Spirit. In verse 22 it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Joy is a fruit that comes from relationship with God. It comes from the Holy Spirit Himself. Happiness comes from temporal circumstances, but the residency of God in your life is what gives this solidity to you that allows you to remain joyous in the worst conditions. We may be headed into some worse conditions. We may lose some temporal happiness through it. But joy remains. Because joy is married to grace. That will probably sound funny on the recording. I guess I'll just leave it there. It was just that Joey is married to Grace. Um, we don't want to forget where we started. Right? I think of this one scripture that says, Look to the pit from whence you were digged. That's an old King James style. Look to the pit from whence you were dig- digged. It, it, it talks about a quarry where uh, it's messy and sloppy and, and there are chunks missing out of the wall all around in this quarry and the view is that God came into the quarry looked at this mess found you and came over to your chunk of the quarry and just began to dig you out and said I want this one for myself 
He quarried you out of all humanity, took you for himself. Look to the pit from whence you were digged. And the pit you were in was pretty, uh, as the Bible says, miry. Yeah? Pretty ugly. Gross. Laden with all of the bad stuff of humanity and the stuff you were dragging around. And God said, I'm going to love you right there. I'm going to act sovereignly and come into your life, demonstrate my love to you, and make it irresistible. And you and I ran to the cross. And the joy that came in that moment can get lost in running the treadmill. In trying to make God happy with us thereafter. I, I can't say I really get this. How that on my worst day of trying, God smiles through it, looks through the lens of Jesus and says, yeah, I love you the same. Because I want to say that's not possible. There's got to be a list that I'm failing on. There's the rules that I'm breaking. There's, there's all the laws. What about those? God says, well, you know, if you'd, if you'd just empty yourself out like the glove and let me slip Jesus in as the hand, we could probably make this work better. I could live my life through you. He's not manipulating us. Don't take that view. But if we're filled with the life of Christ, like the empty glove is filled with the hand, and the life of Jesus is being lived out through us, then we have the same testimony as Paul the Apostle. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm still alive. Yet it's not me that's living. It's Christ who's living through me. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I've emptied myself out. I've confessed to the point where I say, I am nothing. I am unable. I am incapable. It doesn't matter how many miles I run on the treadmill. I can't please you more. So I'm emptied of myself and I say, Lord, take control. And he slips his life into me and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell me. And when he comes, he says, I'm bringing all of my charisma. I mean, bringing all of my graces. I'm bringing my gifts with me. And as I live in you, you're going to experience love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, faith. All these things are going to be in you and can be lived out through you at any given moment. You know, every now and then I hang out with Pastor Floyd. He's still, you know, Darlene still lets him feed me. Every now and then. And, and he broke through into my thinking on, on a comment one morning. And I'll, I'll see if I can get it right. If I don't, you can stand and correct me. Because it's, it's worth having. We're going through our day. And um, let's see, what illustration can I use? The blue streak comes out of our mouth. You know what that means, right? I don't have to give an example. Do I? In fact, I remember shortly after I'd given my life to Christ, I was still hanging out in the street, and I just came from the drug scene and all that. And I turned around and used the vocabulary that I normally used, and it was though I, it was like I could see it coming out of my mouth. And as it was coming out, I thought, "Boy, we don't do that anymore." I didn't need anybody to teach me that. The Holy Spirit said, "Is just like, oh, I want to grab those words, and I don't want to eat them again because they're really ugly, but I would like to never do that again." It was a heart conviction. And even in the midst of my joy, I'm talking like this. So, anyway, on your day, and this happens. And, and how do we normally repent? Because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 1.9, if 
any man sins, if he confesses his sins, God's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So I know that my next step is to confess my sin. What sin do I confess? Our tendency is to go into a list of laws that we've heard from somewhere, even from Scripture, rules. You know, don't let any uh, evil communication come out of your mouth, for example. We know that's there. And under conviction of, of the Holy Spirit, we might say, Lord, forgive me for swearing. Well, if you're going to start there, you're going to be there a long time. Because swearing, well, yeah, the thought I had about my neighbor, and the, I was just speeding when I drove home, and, and the WL line went, I don't know how it got under my tire, but it did. Uh, you know, we start, I mean, the list will go on and on and on. Because we fail at keeping the law. What should our confession more properly be? Let me offer this insight that came when I was talking with Floyd. Lord, forgive me, because in the moment we just passed, I took the crown off of your head and said you could no longer be king of my life, and I acted on my own accord. Because with your life and me, you would have never said those things. So evidently in that moment, I took away your lordship and decided I was going to do it my way again. When my way showed up, it was pretty bad. Regardless of what the list is, it's just a failure to allow Christ to live his life out through us. Amen. In that moment, it wasn't Jesus swearing at the neighbor or yelling at the whatever or, or abusing the family or being mad or whatever that that list was. Are you, are you following me here? Grace says his life is needed. He needs to live his life out through me. I need to yield to his life in me. And when I do, I'm going to experience love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering. All the great charis of the Holy Spirit, all the graces of the Holy Spirit will come. My life will be filled with fullness and joy. You know, Jesus in John chapter 14 and 16 said, you know, up until this point you really haven't asked much, but I'm telling you now, ask whatever you want in my name so that your joy may be full. It's His purpose to fill our life with joy. And joy comes from grace. And knowing that I can't earn the favor of God today or tomorrow. But I can strip Him of His Lordship in my life and begin to live it out my own way. And that really is my sin. Does this make sense to you? Maybe it will help you in the future. When you start in on the list mode, say, wait a minute, that's the law, isn't it? Law, law, don't, don't. You know, two lists. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this. The Bible has a lot of it. Even in the New Testament, there are many passages where Paul says, you know, put off the old man. And, and with him, put off all these things, lying and stealing and corruption and all these things. He has a list. So we can identify that there's a place where I'm, I'm breaking the heart of God. Over here is another list of the things I can do. You know, love my neighbors myself, uh, give to the poor. I mean, there are great things I can do. But I'll never conquer lists without the grace of God. Without knowing that He's simply living His life out through me. And the only reason I can do anything good at all, even when I give to the poor, even when I pray for a neighbor... When I'm when I'm helping others, when I'm dying to self and encouraging others in that moment, the only reason I can do that is because the Holy Spirit indwells me. 
Some of you used to be short temper people, right? And your family is still amazed at the change that came into your life when Christ came in. Because Jesus doesn't have a short fuse. You're a, um, you know, not picking on anyone in particular, but you know, those with red hair often say they have short fuses. <laughs> and is that true? You know, oh, am I Irish or I got a red head or I, whatever? You know, it comes in the genes and say, you know what? Your genes are no longer from your parents. If you've been born again, you now have a new gene system. You've got a new DNA. You're born again of the Spirit of God. His Spirit co-joined your spirit and you were born again the one that was dead in trespasses of sin according to Ephesians chapter 2 you were the one that was dead and he came and brought new birth to you Jesus said you can't get into the kingdom without being born again and when you were born again the DNA structure of your life changed now you have his character his nature his DNA and so when things go wrong you lean into his DNA structure you lean into the response that's godly you let him live his life out through you have you ever prayed for somebody and they got well? Yes. Would you consider that amazing? Yes. Because you know when you look at your hands that they're only loaded with blanks. <laughs> the Bible says lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. It's not your hand that's amazing, right? It's His Word that's amazing. It's His life that flows through you that's amazing. It's His grace using you as a, as a tool in His hand to minister His life through you. That's amazing. And, gee, uh, I guess I could be corny enough to say that's probably where songs like Amazing Grace come from. Right? And books like, was it Yancey or one of those guys that wrote um, What's So Amazing About Grace? Why do we write in these things? Why does somebody write what I read this morning to you? Because we don't fully understand it. It is amazing. I'm tending to like this song more and more as we sing it. Lord, I'm amazed by you. I do like the new version of Amazing Grace, too. Because I like that insert about my chains are gone. I'm not chained to the world anymore. I'm not chained to the structures of my old life. I'm no longer bound as a prisoner to my old habits, my compulsions, my evil desires. The things that drove me to the cross. I've been set free from those things. My chains are gone. And in the movie, it's all about prisoners being set free. And that's us. We were the prisoners. We were the prisoners of sin. And Jesus came and broke the chains. He didn't remove them so that there was opportunity later to put them back on. He destroyed them. No longer to be reestablished in my life. I'm reminded, you know, I'm pretty visual, so when the Bible talks about the old man being dead, uh, there are days when I've tried to give him CPR. (laughs) Amen. You know, today would be a good day for him to be back alive and mean as ever. Come on, get up, get up. I have not ever verified this, but I did hear the story that it was the Romans that if you were a murderer, that part of your punishment before you served for your crime was that they would tie the dead body to your back and make you carry it around town for a while. You know, sometimes that guy's hanging on me and you. 
And uh, we, we have to, he, he likes to try and come to life and revive. And, the, and Paul says, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. Put him to death again. Two times in the New Testament, in the King James Version, it says, Paul says, mortify the deeds of the flesh, which means you wrestle them things to the ground and hold them there. The old ways. The other passage says, while you're holding them there, the Holy Spirit will destroy them. See, you and I are just powerless against these things. Because if we pin our stuff to the ground and hold it there, and we quit holding, what happens is it gets up and attacks us. But if we wrestle it to the ground and while we're holding it there, say, Lord, come and mortify this thing. Kill this thing. Destroy this thing. Remove it of its strength and power against me today and set me free. And the grace of God comes to release us. Have you ever been delivered of something? Instantaneously. You know that wasn't your power. Whether it was drugs or alcohol or simple things or Maybe you were a chronic liar or whatever it was. And then Jesus came and showed you that and said, I can set you free. And it was gone the next day. Has it happened for you in some point? Isn't that a delight? And so we come back to this joy. It's inescapable. The Bible says it's just almost indescribable. Right? Full of glory. Undescribable. I can't say it with words. But you know when you have it. And once you've had it, if you don't have it, you know when it's gone. And might I just end with this. Generally when the joy of the Lord is gone, it's because we're living a life that offends God. We've embraced sin. We said, I'm going to keep this one for myself. This is my pet sin. All the rest I've repented of, but this one I'm keeping just for me. And the joy begins to diminish because we've loved this more than Him. It's not because we're failing in the list or we're not keeping the law. It's because we're making a choice. To say, let me have your crown one more time. I'm going to wear it and I'm going to keep this for me. He says, well, you're in charge. That's free will. You can make that choice. Well, I just want you to know it saddens my heart to not be in fellowship with you. And I'm still going to follow you around. So it won't matter how many steps you take away from me. It's only one back. So you turn around. I'll be right there. Because I am the hound dog of heaven. I'm after you. I loved you. I quarried you out. I selected you for myself. It had nothing to do with how good looking you were. You might wonder why I do some of those things. It's because he loves us. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. This truth. And I thank you that truth sets us free. Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith. Faith that would pursue you. Faith that would run to you. Faith that would embrace your grace. I pray for revelation to break upon our hearts and minds. In the spirit man. Lord even if you can get a little bit in on us today. This revelation of grace. And freedom. And your tremendous love toward us. 
regardless of our actions or in our performance. Lord, I believe that we'd be much freer. And so I pray that you'll begin. For those who live in your grace, take them deeper. Let the joy that comes from living in your grace be abundant. Help us to live in your provision, which is a gift. Let it be dynamic in our lives, not just a static page. Lord, may we become life-giving to those around us. Pray that our joy, as many have prayed, would be contagious. That we would be salt and light, irresistibly demonstrating your presence wherever we go. Thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, send us out with this joy in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey team, the whole world is waiting for you out there. Go get them. Let them have it. Give it away. Don't keep it. <laughs>